Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Ayla, who is an online virtual sex worker. Uh, She does a lot of uh, sexy photography and stuff of that nature, but she's also quite a sharp cookie, and she wrote an article that really impressed me on her blog, which I linked below, and I reached out to her because I want to talk about her take on gender and sexuality as somebody who interacts uh, with that quite often. So this conversation explores that. And uh, to be perfectly frank, it's really difficult to interview somebody who's naked because you know the interview process is to allow the uh, interviewee to successively disrobe themselves till you get to an intimate core. So it's really hard to start from <laughs> the, the base level of nudity. Where do you go from there? Uh, so I don't know how well I did. And she's also very keen at reaching through the screen and making contact with the person who is interacting with her. So, rather an experiment, but quite a clever and wise woman, and proud to have her on the show. Let's get to it. Here is Ayla. This blog post you wrote in May called Readjusting to Porn has some very powerful insights, especially around gender, uh, that I just wanted to hear you talk about because I've been doing a series on gender uh, and talking to a lot of women about what it means to them. And you get right to the way in which male attention or um, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you say that you feel gendered when you uh, position yourself as something that is seen uh, by men. I was wondering if you you want to expand on that uh, or we can do more of your biography. I don't know how many of these you do. How bored you are of your own story? I'm not. Well, I'm not bored because, like, I, I think I focus on different things every time I'm talking about it, so I don't get bored. But um, yeah, well, I mean, I noticed this most specifically. I camped for about five years, and then I quit camping. Um, and five years has been when I was like 20 to 25, so this is like the majority of my adult woman sexual life as like out in the world. Um, and then, so. I didn't really have a lot of other experiences. And when I quit, I noticed that I really wanted to like wear really baggy clothes and like not do feminine things. Um, like I sort of, I, the, the, when people talk about, you know, being like agender or something that really uh, like resonated with me in the sense, like the aesthetic of it, not necessarily like, a deeper philosophical thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then it made me realize just like how much my role in society affected the way that I experienced gender. Uh, it was really salient to me. And I noticed it again when I started doing online um, sex work, how I felt, again, like extremely female. Like the sense of I am a woman, like came up because it's a response. Like it's like a, a, a role that I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Were those baggy clothes or being more agender, was that kind of like incognito um, in a way? Like uh, kind of passing I mean, through society without uh, the traction of being paid attention to as. A woman or within your femininity um i think 
it was like an attempt to to readjust what I was signaling as valuable about myself. Like when I was a cam girl, it was like my physical appearance was like what got me money um, and got me through the world and like the thing which I sort of like used as a tool. Uh, and so it was sort of like a reaction to that. Like, okay, I now I want to try using other things as tools and I want to be like very obvious about this um, in the way that I interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is obviously reversed as you can tell. <laughs> I can only tell so far. I mean, your clavicles are very lovely, I, I, I will say. Um, wait, are clavicles the thing on the end of the fingernail or the... Okay, I was, I was right. Cuticles. Uh, I was getting mixed up. Were, when you were... One of the things that I have um, explored is young women, uh, specifically D-trans women, uh, and their relationship with their femininity, kind of going through a phase of uh, kind of backing away from it and then uh, kind of going back into being a woman, which is really interesting because it shows kind of the process of being aware of that. Were you, um, was it startling to suddenly as a human being be a paid attention to by men in a certain way when you're growing up? And what was the way in which as a cam girl uh, you uh, kind of mastered that attention. What were I'm some of the things sure. that you had? I'm not sure because I guess I'm such an outlier um, because I was raised like a fundamentalist evangelical Christian and I was homeschooled. And so oh. my like, exposure to like the way men and women in sexuality are is like, completely different from what most people are exposed to. Um, like I never, like it was, you're not supposed to kiss before marriage was like the idea. Yeah. And I was homeschooled, so the only people I knew were other people who thought that too, and we weren't allowed to watch media where people did things like, you know, get get frisky before marriage. So, um, like, my concept of, like, men paying attention to me as a sexual creature is, like, basically non-existent. Um, I went through my entire teenage years with this almost not happening. Um, it's sort of, like, occurring like, in isolation in my own mind. Like, I knew that I was supposed to be desirable, but this wasn't really reflected in the world around me. Um, and so I think when I got to adulthood, I approached it sort of like in a naive, very straightforward way. Like I hadn't been um, impacted already. And so it was very straightforward. I'm like, okay, I have a body. Um, men will pay me to look at the body. This seems like a normal thing to do. And it was just, it was very cut and dry. It was like, it was like my body was a tool. And that was primarily through um, virtual format, through a video, uh, something removed from actual men. That's kind of how you... I was pretty slutty, too. I wasn't um, doing sex, like, in-person sex work at the time, although I did eventually start doing that. Um, but I, was, I also had that applied to, like, sex, because I didn't understand how people did sex. And as far as I got, people got horny, and then they had sex. And so when I got horny, I would just go to a nearby male and be like, do you want to have sex? And then we would. So I just had sex with a lot of people. Oh, okay. And was it like a persona in a way, like this sexual persona or um, in like constructing an identity and an online identity? um, How, how did you construct that? What were like the steps of doing that? How did you explore the feedback and how did you know you're doing the right thing or, uh, that you're going I guess in the right direction. In terms of gender or in marketing? Um, 
Okay, that, that's a good question. So there is the marketing, which would be how to expand how many people are watching you, right? So how to grab attention, right? So there's that facet. And then within the act of being cam girl, there's the maintaining the attention or the manipulating of the attention and, and, and not in a negative sense in the word. How did you go about, um, I guess, learning those two paths? Lots of trial and error. Um, when I first started camming, I was basically just really unfiltered myself, sort of like the little bit nervous self. Um, I was extremely awkward. This is how I started miming. I started doing like mime shows on cam. And I, became oh, really? I was extremely goofy and a little bit high energy because I didn't really know what like femininity was. I was just like myself except naked. Um, and that did okay. And then over the years, it was like, I did many hundreds of hours of camming and it became like a fine tuned adjustment to figure out like what version of myself actually generates the most income. And I had a, a piece of paper that I had printed out and a very nice design with like rules for myself to follow. And I put it right behind the camera. So I would watch it every time I camped. And I forget exactly what they were, but it's something like smile more, talk slower, use smaller language, look directly into the camera and laugh. It was stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so over time I started shifting from this kind of like pretty nerdy little analytical, like I would talk about concepts the whole lot to like a much slower, like you can see my body language even now, like I, I'm, I have a camera on me so I can feel myself like a little bit doing it. Um, but I learned that just, you can't talk too quickly. You have to use small words and be really amused by the jokes other people make. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then when did that, um, and this is more of a question, less about sex work, just being a performer. Was there like a kind of a distance that you put between the person that you are for those hundreds of hours and who you are, are like that? There was like a wall there. And did that become permeable or was it pretty easy to like don that? Um, I think for me, it's, again, a little bit of an outlier. Um, I'm a highly compartmentalized person in general, as in like the parts of me that engage with different sort of environments tend to look very different. Yeah. I don't consider this to be um, a negative thing or like not a true self. I consider every compartmentalized part of me to be an aspect of like my true, genuine self. Uh, so yes, I have very like distinct ways of modes of behavior. Um, and I consider those to be like good in that mode um, and there is permeability as much as I feel I have the capacity to like for example when I was an escort um, I was very very compartmentalized with that person like I kind of transformed into a different person but I had the ability in some clients to like allow some sort of like real genuine like love in a sense compassion and like come through and I would experience that as an escort like I would really feel like affection for these people but it was still like only to the degree which it felt like safe to do so in the sense okay. like it didn't it didn't go too far to actually blur the capacity I had to do the work okay and when you're speaking about work that's so intimate like an escort which is um it can slip into types of um maybe even psychology or it's very intimate you're you're con contacting with people in an intimate way are there tricks that you like awareness of how f how too much how you're evoking too much intimacy from the man uh like getting uh becoming too clingy or him becoming too clingy because of certain signals that you're giving off was that kind of a like an exploratory process too um i think 
I did well in it, um, mostly. There Occasionally, people get clingy, but mostly people know what it is. Mostly people go to escorts for that sort of disassociation. Like, they yeah. don't want to have the strange clinginess that they might get. So most people, it wasn't an issue. Um, there was a small number of people who started to feel, like, affection for me that sort of... Like, they started making attempts to connect outside of the frame that we had established. And usually when that happens, I just, like, totally ignore. Send me an email, I don't ignore. Or if they say a thing, I just, like, act like I didn't hear it. Um, and then eventually I would be, like, slower to answer their emails to sort of, like, give a proportional signal to their clinginess oh, that I'm yeah. pulling away. And I don't know if that was ideal in all circumstances, but it seemed to work overall. That's pretty uh, masterful, uh, crafty. Um but uh, yeah. non-confrontational in a way, um, as long as they pick up eventually on the subtlety. Right. And the more that they don't, the stronger my signal becomes. What do you think? Um, th- this is a really broad question. So uh, feel free to batter me around to like get it down to size. But what do you understand about men by interacting with them in the way that you do? Like, what is something that you can extrapolate, like some sort of wisdom or uh, advice with dealing with men? Or like, what is it um, like, like how to unlock the man, uh, maybe on just the desire level, but you do more than just interacting with desire with regards to how you communicate and stuff like that. What are some of the insights that you've gained that you find other people don't know or that are kind of... Well, men re- when men want to be what women want. That's like the really important baseline. And so men respond really strongly to signals and culture about what women want and what they should be. And so like a lot of guys who are pursuing sex workers still have this in, in their mind. Like they want me to genuinely like them. Um, men want to be accepted. And so this comes into sex so much, like so much of the sexual interaction. It's not just about sex. It's about like being accepted by the woman. And I think that's like what that symbol is. Like the thing that you are, the desires you have, the body you're in, like the needs, like that is okay with me because so much of the, the interaction between men and women is like sort of a threat and power thing. Like a lot of women are like, no, you can't. And men like have these needs that they're constantly looking for. And so that that creates this tension that um, sort of, I think, bleeds into everything, into like emotion and intimacy and and everything. Because like, I mean, it makes sense. Like when I have a male friend who has needs a shoulder to cry on, like it's going through my head, like, is he trying to fuck me? And that's often quite true. So with with, um, sex work, like you don't have to have that question anymore and that like tension between the two dissolves. And so you get like a really cool access to some sort of intimacy that often a lot of men just have never experienced before. Hmm. If that answered your question. but Yeah, yeah. What are some of the broad... um, There's not just one feminism. I've spoken with a lot of uh, women specifically about feminism, and it seems like there's a lot of different brands of feminism. So everybody kind of has their own kind of brand of feminism, but there's these distinct schools, gender critical, uh, sex positive, sex negative, liberal feminism. What are some of the things that um, you think that feminism, broadly speaking, gets wrong about the relationship, the power dynamic between men and women? Or some of the things... What's that? I think it's dehumanization. I think a lot of feminism dehumanizes like the personhood of men. Like there's a way, I I feel like ideally if people treated each other well, it would be as if they were in love with each other. Like how would you treat somebody if you 
we're madly head over heels in love with them. And like, it might seem a little insane, but it's like really good. Like anything that they do, you really understand why they did it. And like, maybe you have to work out, you know, issues that you have, but there's this, you're coming from this place of like, you are perfect in a way. And this is totally non-existent with feminism in regards to, to men. Like there is no, like, I'm deeply in love with you sort of vibes coming out. It's like, like how would women treat men if they were deeply in love with them, but still wanted to institute boundaries. And it would be something like really deeply listening to their pain. Okay. And you, you took that to a completely uh, deeper level. Like it seems like you could have gone so far as to say there's not enough good faith for men, but you say that there, there has to be more than just good faith. There has to be like a deep uh, love. Could you explain what you mean by that love then? Like that, that uh, like you're using very powerful language. Oh um, yeah. It's just like, um, like a heuristic I have. Like if I'm thinking about someone and like, I'm having a reaction to someone then I do the question, I check, like, well, how would I feel if I were in love with them? And then that sort of like shows me this alternate way that I could handle mm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that, that that's better. Like, that's just, it feels better to feel in love with people. Okay. No, sometimes I just hate and I'm like, fine with it. I'm not saying you have to, <laughs> but it's like, it's nice to think about. What do you, um, is that, is, do you feel that that's intentional or are you pretending to be in love with them? Or are you, uh, is there any spontaneity in that? Are you, is this like some superpower you have to just inhabit that place of genuine love and, and care for people? That seems kind of taxing in, in a way to be able to be so emotionally open and invested in somebody. I mean, sometimes it's easier than others. I've gone through like phases where it was like my default state of being for like a year and it was great. Now I'm like, you know, I don't feel that like automatically all the time, but I think it just comes with a vivid imagination. Like if you just sit and concentrate on it a little bit. Um, But also I don't mean to judge people who don't do that. Like it's, it's fine if you don't want to feel like you love everybody. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in your, essay again and i'll link it because it's very powerful you say that when you got back and this is really personal so you seem like a very open person but you talk about um getting back into camming and wrestling with this hatred i think you used the word hate of men or, or like anger maybe that is yeah what was that um and how how have you th- this is from may so it's been a few months why, why do you think that, that was because that seems like the opposite of that that love that you're saying yeah de- yeah definitely um i think that they can exist in conjunction like similarly how i think feminism's problem is dehumanization of men i think a lot of men also dehumanize women it's like it's not i don't think there's really an asymmetry going on i think it's quite yeah. equal um and so in this it's just like i have encountered so many times where it's obvious that the thing that they care about is not me. It's my body. And I'm aware that this is what I'm signing up for. Like, I know that this is what the deal is. I'm not, we're not, I'm not being faked out. Um, so most of the time it doesn't annoy me, but like there's some, I think especially transitioning from where I was non-sexual to sexual online. And then like seeing that shift happen um, was like, it hit me a little bit harder um, that time. Cause it's kind of painful. Like it's not that much fun especially like if you're not aroused in return, like, like asymmetric sexual desire is like really not fun for either party really. Mm. Um, So yeah, I have like a lot of like resentment towards men and it feels sort of 
uh, like sort of like necessary resentment, like in order to to have some sort of self like distance from what's going on. It's like a survival mechanism in some sense. I don't necessarily endorse it on like a very deep level, but I definitely experience it. Uh, some sort of uh, yeah protecting mechanism, or to make that line between you and what they see more distinct in a way. Yeah. Do you see um, in your line of work and in the culture at large? Do you see, especially for men, if there's, I don't want to go down any sort of judgmental route, but is there things that they should be aware of with um, you know young men? Uh, their first contact with sexuality more often than not in our culture, in our day and age is through some sort of virtual uh, edifice uh, interface. Uh, do you think that that's necessarily good for them? And do you have any thoughts on how that might shape or mold men um, just from your perspective or to, to bring it in a less judgmental way? Are there things that you see that men could improve on with their sexuality um, that they're not getting and developing through the virtual medium, especially young men. Yeah. Well, don't trust sex workers, obviously. Um, Not that they're all the time inaccurate, but that you're not going to get a negative signal is if I had to, if I'm telling you, if you're like, you're hypothetically this young man, Um, because like with sex work, they'll give you a positive signal if you're doing something they like, but they'll also give you a positive signal if you're not doing something they like. Um, so just be aware that like uh, you need to seek out positive, negative signals, um, and that will be some sort of indication, a way of getting this genuine, um, especially in your real person. Like like online, this might not be the case, but just like that's like I think really important. A lot of people don't understand that, and a lot of men who I think are trained on the online sex work stuff um, will encounter a woman IRL who gives them a negative signal and they might take that really personally. Like this is evidence of their own failure in some way. Okay. Um, well, this is absolutely not, this is normal. This is what the, if genuine interactions like. So. Hmm. Are there, um, projects that you're working on? You, you said today that you wanted to write. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what is that? Where are you at with, uh, developing your writing and wh- what direction are you going with that? What are some of the big ideas that you're tooling around with? I mean, for the book I'm working on? Yeah, I guess, unless you want to keep that under wraps, but uh, just generally, what, what's your philosophical uh, life or your that that part? What's going on there? What do you, you do? You have such, like, a, like, your series of questions is really interesting. Like, most people's questions feel like, they, um, like they're like they tied on the string. Like, like, I'm following a string of my hands, and I get a knot, and that's the question, and then I keep going. And yours feels kind of like... Um, like I'm getting like balls thrown at me from like opposite sides of my head. Okay. It's really interesting. Anyway. <laughs> It'll congeal. It'll congeal. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's just, it's just interesting. Um, okay. Right. The book, and feel right. free to dodge any of the balls too. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm totally good with that. Um, uh, I want to teach people how to stop suffering. Cause I learned how to stop suffering. Um, and that's the core of it. I think sort of that like a place of full acceptance is really safe and you don't have to feel um like maybe the way you do anymore Hmm. that's like the the deepest level thing but there's like a lot of other things like uh you know i want to write about sort of my life um i want to write about the way that people change their minds um because i used to be very fundamentalist and extremely intolerant 
and I changed and now I see a lot of people who really hate the kind of person I used to be. And I'm like, that's not how you treat that. So there's this whole like area where like how to actually recognize when what you believe might be wrong, even when it feels like the truest thing you've ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot about that too. I don't know, just fun stuff. That fundamentalism, uh, that clinging tightly to an idea, um, was that was that like a very sharp break for you, or was it like a gradual kind of shift? You mean when I lost my faith? Yeah. I guess the word lost your faith is pretty uh, cliff-like. Yeah, it was very cliff-like for me. A lot of people have it very gradual, but for me it was pretty immediate. Um, hmm. I had been raised in a very like logical faith. Like My dad is a professional christian evangelist and he has like a radio show and writes books and has a very large evangelical website and like debates prominent atheists and stuff um and so growing up i was very exposed to all of it like i was it wasn't like don't don't ask questions like we're not here it was very like upfront and like yes we're going to talk about the doubts you have um and face that because we have the truth and so i really had this sense like we have the truth like we're not shying away from it we're asking really hard questions um and so the, the last straw was, I think I was 19 or something, almost 19, and I had just moved away to college. So this was the first time I'd been around people who were not religious. And I think like that was really important. I didn't realize it at the time, but like somewhere mentally before I had been around non-religious people, I didn't have a concept of non-religious people that wasn't negative. Like they were secular, they were secretly liars and cheaters and immoral and they would hurt you and like they might act nice and they might be like seem to be really good people but like deep down you couldn't trust them Mm. and but actually leaving home and being around them and seeing that the world functioned and that people were kind to me and like i could potentially have a life here that sort of like gave me the space to actually consider that maybe what i believed was wrong when i don't think i could have allowed myself to actually think about that beforehand because that would have meant sacrificing too much my Christianity was very much a load-bearing belief. It was like holding up my function in so many ways yeah. that like okay. my brain would refuse to let me consider that maybe it wasn't true because it knew it would break me. So once I got to a position where it wasn't going to break me, um, there was like an argument that I thought of that like I hadn't heard before. And it for the first time it allowed me to really consider my faith from the outside. I was like, wait, th- I, I'm, I seem to be putting in a lot of effort to make sure I believe this. Like, there's a lot of mental processing going on into explaining all of the holes that people are poking in. And, like, maybe the truth shouldn't be that exhausting. And so once I, like, thought, like, what is it like if I didn't try to, like, hold this up? Then I realized it was, like, it didn't make sense, really. And then everything just crumbled, and then I lost it basically within the span of, like, two minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. I've noticed in... I come from a somewhat um, fundamentalist background, but I'm very interested in cults and cult mentality. And we see this a lot in our political landscape right now, a lot of very fervent believers. And a pattern that I've seen is that people who are really strong believers kind of bounce around from one extreme to another. You have extremists, uh, like your basic garden variety, uh, you know, white supremacist extremist. He gets out of that. He goes really directly into another thing that he firmly believes in. A lot of addicts, too, they go from very, uh, very intimate relationship with this substance, and then they go really uh, fervent into Christianity or something that br- brings them out of that. 
I wonder if that's a personality thing or um, or what. But what was it like to navigate like a post structured existence? Did you have to go and find another structure, or were you able to not have such a firm structure that? you found in that fundamentalist? I you, I wonder if um, you're like touching on something that seems like a really good point, And I wonder if we can tease that out a little bit. I think that when people like, transfer in that way, there's probably a couple different subcategories of this. Like, like, for example, you're mentioning structure here. Like, like people want a system of rules to tell them what to do. And if they lose yeah. one system, they'll find another. Um, I think there's like multiple reasons for why people are really dedicated um, at the time, I was pretty extreme. I was pretty extreme even for my community because I took things literally. I was like, if this is what it says, then we, this is what it says. Like, I was like, very like, we have to see this through. Like, I'm not, I was extremely curious and I just like followed things to their conclusion, even if it seemed incongruent with people around me as a Christian. Um, and so that was like what helped me get out of Christianity because I was like this really strong, like, we, we can't think of the externalities we have to go like just through it. Like don't don't let mm. yourself like be cowed by this line of thought. You know, you have to really face it. And so that's like a big part of what allowed me to leave Christianity because I was ready to like punch through any wall. And mm. I think that translates to me now. Um, most people view me as like relatively controversial figure, which I don't feel very controversial, but people react to me in that way sometimes. Um, and mm. I think it comes from a very similar thing. I hold a lot of like quite unpopular opinions um, because I think like I'm, I carried over that same sort of extremist view. I'm like, we're just going to punch through every wall that we yeah. can find. Um, so I think that was what I translated over. It wasn't necessarily an appeal to structure. I haven't really found any sort of similar structure to Christianity since leaving. Okay. Okay. But you like pounding through structures. You, yeah. you find an idea and you go all the way with it or in a way yeah. like juggernaut <laughs> do you feel like if you keep on going just like the whole world's gonna just be like one big pile of rubble because you're gonna keep on smashing through things like hulk well, that's the idea i mean i did that to myself for a while and then i became yeah. a giant pile of rubble i was pretty non-functional for a while yeah yeah what was the what was the term from going and i'm asking this not just for you but for other people who've gone through that or people who are going through that right now what were some of the changes in reestablishing yourself as something that's not a pile of rubble how did you get out of that are you talking about the after acid part or the after christian part oh so there i, I didn't know about the acid part yeah so there's a year where that. i did i'm um, pretty high doses of acid about once a week for a year or okay. almost, and that was that was a pretty strong dissolution. Yeah, were you um, do, doing that uh, studiedly, like with uh, some sort of regimen involved? Some sort of was there intentionality in that um, in that process, or it was just uh, kind of like having a cigarette? Is something <laughs> you did. I'm just saying, like, how seriously did you take this very hard drug, you know? Yeah, it's kind of supposed to having a cigarette. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but for me, it was like, you know, pounding through a wall. Like, the first time I took acid, like, it shattered me. Okay. I was completely changed. I was like, oh, fuck, this is a new way of looking at myself that's, like, sort of leaves behind a lot of the things I was attached to. And I was like, that that's the thing that I want. And then I just kept eating it and eating it and eating it until like, I destroyed all the things I was attached to. And then I yeah. like, barely eat and function at that point. And then I stopped. Okay. 
And and stopping that external or stopping that substance uh, allowed you to go back to more function. Was yeah, there it, took inten- same, it took me about 10 months to go in and then it took me about another 10 months to come out. Okay. I'm, per- I'm permanently changed from it. I like, this is how I stopped suffering. Um, oh, but yeah, I'm, I'm mostly functional now. I know this is another curveball, but what do you mean by suffering and how do you extrapolate that into a general principle for people to land on to understand what you're talking yeah, I about? Know, it's ridiculous. It's like a ridiculous thing to attempt to do. Um, but there's like, okay, I have one example. Um, so throughout my life, I had like this thing in the back of my head where I was like kind of afraid of being homeless. Like being homeless felt a little bit like losing the game. Like, oh, I lost my job and I'm having terrible eating and I'm sleeping on the street. Like that's like, that's like the floor. And so I was always sort of like really not want to be on the floor. Um, and it was sort of this like reactionary thing, like, well, at least I'm not there. And then during the period of like, you know, punching my own walls open, there was a point where I uh, really came to terms with the fact I like looked at my fear of being homeless, like stared it straight in the face. And I realized like, okay, um, if I'm homeless, then what? And then I like went through this very strong imaginative process and decided that actually this is fine. This is not the end. This is not losing. My life continues and it's just as valid and valuable. And after that, um, I stopped being afraid of being homeless and I still tried not to be homeless like this didn't really affect you know my motivations or my desire to not be cold or eat but there's a way in which like the way that i was acting didn't come out of this resistance like it was like this wall of homelessness was there and then after i returned with it it's like i could reach through it openly and like act not out of fear and so this is a very small example where like yeah uh I want to generalize this to everything. Like you can become not afraid of everything, even though you may act as though you are. And I think that this is like what really comes down to suffering, like including pain. Like, like if you're experiencing pain, like it's okay. Like you can look at it, become one with it, and then realize that this is not something you're afraid of. Okay. As opposed to using some form of pleasure seeking to uh, avoid that pain. Is more confrontational in a way. I don't mind avoiding pain. I'm fine with pleasure seeking and avoid pain, but I mean, like pleasure seeking, like as a way to, like because you can't be okay with that pain. Okay. Like because, like in somewhere, you have a belief in the back of your head that believes that experiencing that pain will be the end of the world, even if consciously you might not like agree to it. But like it's like the bad, the evil is if you experience this one thing, hmm. and that's not true. You seem like you have a lot of compassion. Thank you. Is that? Do you think that's natural? Did that come from something, or was that something that that you left behind? Do you have a relationship with that part of you? Uh, um, I or? think where does compassion come from? I think it comes from like, well, I guess like some form of self destruction. Like, hmm. like I'm. I feel very self accepting. I'm okay with basically every single thing that I experience. And that with that comes acceptance of what other people experience. Okay. Yeah. And how does that, um, how are you going to write about this? I don't know, man. Or is it going to be <laughs> like a, problem. like a book about a woodshed or something like that? Or is it going to be a seven <laughs> steps to a sexy, healthy life kind of thing? 
I think I'll probably just like write what feels good to write and then it'll just come out if it wants to. And if not, then that's fine. Yeah. Like it's possible that the message won't come through in the book at all. Um, okay. But I just, I kind of trust the process, you know? You're very thoughtful on Twitter. What's your relationship with that medium? You're very powerful in your thoughts, too. I, I appreciate your sentences. That's a high compliment from me. Thank you. How many times do you give that compliment? Um, not that often, actually. <laughs> I, there's, there's, I appreciate your sentences, and then I'm, I'm envious of your sentences, which is a very rare thing for me to be I like, see. actually. All right, so we haven't hit envious yet. I haven't seen, I haven't gone through your whole back catalog, though, so <laughs> there's probably a few that I'm envious of. Wait, do you have a list of questions that you're I'm, reading on? I'm, I'm listening to us talking, and okay. you are, it, it's actually, I'll be honest, it's, it's difficult to get comfortable with you because you're a really good listener. So you stop talking, and then you're listening, but it's my job to be the listener. A lot of, it's easier when I'm interviewing somebody who likes to ramble. Um, you're just, like, giving compliments. You're pretty good at it. <laughs> well, I, I do basically what you do. Um, I just do it in the verbal realm. Okay. Do you ever feel like a whore? Um, I, I feel, well, okay. I, whoa, that's that. Okay. That's really tricky. So one, I don't, I, I never called you that. So I don't oh, think I, I'm, that I'm right. a whore. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I claim so, that word. No, it's not it, a, <laughs> Anybody listening in here, there's, I can feel the judgment of that. I have a very strong, um, uh, like, a, I, I, I have to pay whenever I mess up. So I can't be fake, right? Um, when I'm doing my stuff, I have to be authentic. So for me, uh, so this is hard for me to like, to map what I'm doing onto, uh, what you do, because I don't know what exactly I'm selling um, in the way that you are. But I, I have a friend who's very, very firm about the truth. And the truth is the only thing that matters. I'm like, you have to persuade people. He's like, persuasion's bullshit. You, you have to tell them the truth. He's very Ar Aristotelian, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. well, people don't listen to the truth. You actually... So in that way, there is uh, aspects of seduction. Uh, there's aspects of uh, subtle manipulation or of catching the attention of others. Like I said earlier, like you have to catch the attention, then you have to keep the attention and then you have to change it. If you're really good at what you're doing in this realm of media, people come out the other side changed, right? So there's a whole series of manipulations that you are doing that I think do map on to the interaction of uh, a male seeking out sexual stimulus, going through mm -hmm. the process of achieving gratification of that and then leaving out the other end with a different set of endorphins in his head. But I don't, but honesty and authenticity are really important to me. So I don't give myself a lot of wiggle room. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you feel uncomfortable talking about yourself or is this natural? Do I feel uncomfortable talking yeah. about myself? Um, yeah, but okay. wait, or is that natural? And it probably is natural. So, uh, but there, there's a certain level of expectation that I'm violating by the conversation going back right. this way. Yeah. So I have to readjust the whole thing. <laughs> so if, if, 
If you were, if we were on your channel, then it would be completely different. Um, I would just be letting loose, you know, yeah. and you're asking me about, you know, I don't know what you'd be interested in that I know of, but you know, whatever people are interested in what I know of. So, um, cool. What did you ask about the tweets? What about gender is changed? I'm sorry. I don't, things have been changing really rapidly around gender in the last five years, but last 10 years, probably last 20 years. Um, it seems like there's this idea in the soup about gender being infinitely malleable. And you say very specifically, you link it and other people that I've spoken to really link like gender and sex are part of the same thing. It seems mm -hmm. like there's this idea in the mix of becoming gender atypical intentionally being uh, non-binary is one of the terms uh what are your some of your thoughts or insights into people who are starting to play around with that and do you do that too yeah i think that we're not talking about the same thing i think that when i think of gender it's a completely different concept than what people who are non-binary think of gender as and so like it's like a sorry my computer this time um, so the confusion like exists there because I think that like it's possible to have share a frame that validates like both the way that I and likely you understand gender and also the way that like sexual progressives understand gender. Hmm. Um, like there's obviously this tension between like gender is something that exists uh, that you can sort of see on a person. Like it's quite obvious. Like to me, you look male, and if you said you weren't, like that would not change the way that i perceive you even if yeah. i'm very on board with the way, thing that you say like there's some way that maleness is inherent to like a certain visual pattern and that is like not something that people have any control over and i think that when like the thing that i'm talking about when i say gender or maybe also conservatives although i don't identify as a conservative mean when they talk about gender is this sort of immutable ancient social pattern of this this cluster of traits Basically, you're exhibiting a cluster of traits, um, and mm -hmm. like, and that is highly correlated with sex, but not identical. Which I, I do think that like gender and sex are distinct, and people have a point when they say that because like those are two sort of separate things that are not identical. Like if you had a, a vagina, I would still process you as male, um, although this just happens very rarely. Uh, so this is like what I think that gender. This is the way that I understand it. Um, but the people who view gender not as this thing, view it as internally determined, which is like it's such a different thing. Like, like how can you look at him? Like, like I'm looking at you. I'm going to use you as how can you look like a male and be like that thing is internally determined? Like, there's some sort of they're not they're obviously not looking at the experience they have when they view a male yeah. and like are talking from that. Like, there's this other thing going on that they're referring to. Um, so we're not we're not on the same page. We're not even talking about the same thing, which means that we're, like, we're likely we don't actually disagree if you really got down to it. But the thing that I think maybe the issue is that I have a problem with, I don't have a problem with people uh, trying to express themselves as non-binary or genderqueer or whatever. Like, obviously, there's a real thing going on and they're trying to communicate it. And I'm 100 mm. percent down with that. And I want that to be accepted in society. Um, the thing that I dislike is the sort of religious use of concepts. Um, so, for example, when I was Christian, uh, I was taught a lot of religious concepts, like, for example, uh, the hypostatic union or the communicado idiomatum, which are like ways to explain the way that Jesus and God are really the same, but also kind of not. Because in the Bible, there's a lot of really contradictory things about Jesus and God. Like, 
there's God and then God like made Jesus, but like also not. And they're like, Jesus claims to be God sometimes, but also they seem like to have very distinct things. And God claims to be like infinite and Jesus obviously was born and died. So we have to come Mm. up with a bunch of concepts to like make sense of that. And in reality, they're nonsensical. Like in reality, that doesn't, you're, you're trying to force two things together that don't work, but you come up with things that make you feel like you know what's going on. You ask, Mm -hmm. Oh, how did God and Jesus do this? And you're like, well, it's the hypostatic union. And you're like, oh, shit, okay, there's the answer, right? And so this is, this is serving a purpose of, like, putting, like, the, the curious, like, if your curiosity is, like, a muffler pipe like, or, like, a vacuum, it's, like, just stuffing a sock in it, and it yeah. stops it. You're like, okay, I am experiencing the sensation that I know what the answer is because I got a concept stuffer. Um, and that concept stuffer, it doesn't actually, does not deeply answer the question. It just surface answers the question. And I think this is what non-binary and gender queer stuff is. I think it's a curiosity stuffer. Like, like you're like, oh, hey, I'm having like really confusing feelings about like gender. Like I noticed that I really am having terrible feelings when people refer to me as a woman. And the answer that they give is, well, we have a concept stuffer for you. You are non-binary. And you're like, oh, cool. Like I get it. I get this identity to take it. And it is serving a functional purpose. Like it's giving people like a way to maneuver what they're experiencing. So I don't yeah. consider it bad in that regard. But I do not think it is like a deeply coherent concept. I think it is fundamentally incoherent. And and and, and this is like the issue that I have with it. And I want to find a better frame, mostly. Do you have any ideas of where that uh, new framework uh, is or would be or might come from? Have you thought about that? And- uh, not a whole bunch, but I yeah. would like to come up with something that isn't gender, but is similar to gender. Like, I don't know what word we could use, like fender or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like, for example, when I see a non-binary person who is born a woman, I view them as woman in my head and non-binary. Like they're two separate categories. Yeah. Um, okay. Like a non-binary woman. Like you're, you're obviously have these female traits. If you belong to the female cluster, you have no control over it. But there's a thing that you're trying to communicate to me about you that you do have control over, and which is something like maybe you are not stereotypically feminine in these ways, or when people view you stereotypically feminine, you are really uncomfortable. And that's like a secondary overlap. And so my ideal world is where we have just the two things where people can have their gender. People can also have like their self descriptors about the way they relate to gender and have this just be like a, a double layered pie. Um, hmm. That sounds great to me. Why do you think it, it's so, um, why do you think it's so popular right now? Why do you think it's captured so many people's imagination? And I might be not to answer my own question, but it might be just overrepresented because it is so weird or different, let's say. Um, but why do you think people get so involved in the gender identity um, matrix and, and all those things? I think we're seeing of less less defined clusters, actually. So you know how like a woman has a vagina and long hair and raises children, um, and this is a very distinct cluster. And like maybe the man has some over here. I think like be- due to lack of scarcity, we're seeing a broadening of the actual clusters themselves. So I think this is a reflection of like reality and not necessarily a reflection of social perception. In the fact that like women and don't are no longer bound to children in the way that they used to be, um, there's birth control and like welfare for helping raise kids and, and stuff like this, um, mm-hmm. and also women are entering the workforce. So there's like legitimately meaningful ways that gender used to be represented that is no longer yeah. like a dichotomy, and so okay. the actual clusters are starting to enlarge, and we're starting to see some sort of meaningful overlap. And the fact that you can play the fully masculine role now in a way that you weren't able to if you're a woman. 
And so I think that this is starting to like put a step, this is the first step. And then also there's things like people really enjoy feeling like a unique identity or like a sense of bonding with other people who share that identity, like like classic things that go into stuff like religion or like any other sort of space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just combine all those together. If, if we get to a place where sex isn't linked to procreation, does it spiral out of control when it's decoupled from the act of procreation or the act of uh, monogamy in a way without that, without those barriers, does it uh, lose meaning or no longer sustain meaning when it isn't sacralized? And I'm not asking on my behalf of myself, but just putting the thoughts out there, because I know we share like a similar background where sex was defined very specifically. And in that definition had a lot of meaning. What happens when it's released from that? Maybe it doesn't have meaning. I don't Hmm. know. Maybe that's fine. Hmm. Like the, the, like a kind of Camusian or that doesn't sound like you're being nihilistic about it. How can something not have meaning? I just, I just assume that humans are really good at like, figuring out meaning like okay if you remove sex from the things like we're probably going to come up with more things or find meaning in a different place like i'm not like really fundamentally worried about sex being less meaningful i'm sure there are a lot of things in history before that were much more meaningful than they are now but we just have different things now and like maybe maybe sex is not going to be any less meaningful if you take it out of the confines of marriage and maybe maybe it's not even a problem we have to worry about but it's not a problem anyway and the same with gender. And I'm kind of trying to fish around for um, thinking through a reactionary point of mind or somebody who is really resistant to people playing around with gender, just like another person has the same feelings about other people being a libertarian with their sexuality. Um, is there not a fear? Where does that fear come from of men not being men anymore, women not being women anymore, and the boundaries that aren't always bad, you know, like separate changing rooms or uh, different sports categories. Once those categories don't have any basis, then it spirals out of control. And I guess that's what you were part of the purpose of what you're talking about, having those two frames of reference, one sex, one gender, one that's gender and this other, other thing. Wait, so you're asking, um, are things going to get out of control if we don't have clear gender roles? Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not asking. I'm just posing that question, yeah, just yeah. to you know. Because there are people, people watching have that question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I don't know. But um, that feels like kind of besides the point. Like when you have like really strong preferences for gender roles, I think that this is like for a reason. I think that this comes out of experiencing a world where gender roles actually benefit you, um, and I think that this is less and less a world that we're living in. Um, I think to some extent it is. Like, I don't mean to deny the ways gender, like the fundamental parts of gender, like really impact our relationships. Like, not at all. Like, I'm a sex worker. It's extremely obvious to me that, mm-hmm. that like, the sexual dynamics are hugely important. Um, but um, what was I saying? I don't remember. You said it was besides the point. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, right. Be- but generals are important, and certain standards of behavior are very important for certain environments. Um, so this is why I'm not, like, mad at people who are very sexually conservative or, like, want very strict gender roles, because, like, I, I'm not, I don't, it seems like appropriate response to a certain type of environment. And okay. we've changed that environment, and they still have that response. And I'm like, well, you're not, like, wrong. You're wrong in conjunction with the world we live in now. 
um, it's, it's not like an absolute wrong. Like I wouldn't say that the way that gender and sex are working now and the way I would like it to work are ideal for all forms of all potential combinations of reality. Like there's definitely a civilization in which uh, having only monogamous marriage seems ideal, but I don't think that this is it. Um, and I think that like the mistake is in believing that there's one certain type of behavior that is ideal for all different forms of environment and all different forms of civilization. Like, and I don't think this is true. I think it's than very different forms. Hmm. Do you have a, a conception of Eros, like a philosophical conception of desire? And uh, I know that's kind of old timey. I mean, it's classical, I guess, like you have this God or Venus or something like that. And I, I'm asking in the question, I'm trying to make a interesting question out of a very boring question. Like, how do you not get bored of what you do? Or how do you, how do you know what you're dealing with in a creative manner? Like, is there a conception of, of desire that you're basing your creative uh, variations of what you're doing on? Uh, how, do, how do you, how do you, I, I just, I don't know the life of a cam girl. So you're, you're taking, uh, you're interacting with desire, right? Is there like, yeah. how do you keep that? How do you be smart about that? How do you be inventive with that? How do you not get bored of that? Oh, well, I do get bored. I okay. get very bored sometimes. Um, Welcome it's like it's astonishing how men just like the same thing. Okay, it's pretty <laughs> it's <incredible>. easy. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> I was so impressed. Like I couldn't do that. Like I need like brand new shit every time. Like like I told them the same porn twice. Um, but like I'm just so impressed. So anyway, I very often like will do things like post a thing like I can't like there's no way people actually want to see like the boobs again, and yet they do. <laughs> Um, so that's shocking to me. And that is like, but it's a, maybe a little more safe than boring. Like if ever I'm feeling creative, really run out, I can just be like, well, I can just go back to the bread and butter and people will like hmm. it. Um, but I, I find that it's actually really good for creativity, this realm, because a lot of the, the standards are very low. What, what men expect out of a naked woman is like the bar is just so low to the ground. You could that she doesn't have any clothes on or minimal amount. Right. So as soon as I take my clothes off, like the bar for me being interesting <laughs> drops. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> People are like, wow, it's a girl. She gets naked and she has thoughts. <laughs> they don't even have to be that great thoughts. Um, mm. so, basi- so basically, like the creativity is like actually much more encouraging environment. Like if you're, if I'm trying to be creative, like say on YouTube with an established array of people, um, I like I might be able to do it. It would be harder, um, but but in, in sex work field, like um, like I mentioned, I'm a mime, and I just got famous for being a mime. Or I did an, a, a set of photos where I got abducted by gnomes and like dragged away. Oh, and, you're the gnome girl. You were really famous on Reddit. That was like a decade ago or something like that. You're the gnome girl. Oh my god, I'm talking to the gnome girl. <laughs> Sorry, I, I guess I showed my cards of internet knowing, but. <laughs> no, because that was very flattering to me. Like it's great when that happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, like, the no, it's just a stupid set, right? But like, because it was in the context of nudity, it was very surprising. Yeah, hmm. the bar is pretty low. I'm pretty like generally happy with it. Are you gonna do? Um, do you do podcasts? Are you thinking about uh, starting something uh, verbal, um, audio verbal kind of stuff? Yeah, actually, 
I really want to do a podcast series um, because I'm very experienced at asking questions. I've asked uh, and you're very good at it over like maybe 1500 questions. And I run a company where um, I sell a deck of questions that I've researched to be the most like divisive and interesting. This is askhole.com. So I'm very into questions. And so I want to run a podcast where the focus of my interviewing style is to um, ask meta questions about like the experience of being in the conversation and also ones that might be like particularly uncomfortable to answer. Hmm. Yeah, you, you put me on the spot, so you, you have that talent. Thank you. Uh, when uh, when is that starting up? Can is there anything that we can plug? We'll plug your OnlyFans. I don't know if YouTube will let me do that, but we can at least say it out loud. It's, it's I have like a link tree. I have a whole bunch. Yeah, of link shit. tree. Okay, yeah. So but when when is your uh, these other projects starting up? The uh, I'm working on a couple other relatively big things right now. So I'm like cool. the podcast is like second degree. As soon as I have a slot open up that i think i'm gonna try that um, wait what did you say about being a slut what was it called slot <laughs> slot what? i have a couple slots oh I was, okay my project. <laughs> <laughs> it did sound to my benefit to my ears that you said slut well yeah, given the context there we go yeah well cool um thanks for letting me have you on um you're the first bathing beauty that i've had on my show so uh you're breaking um some sort of ceiling i don't know what the the fibers are do you have any um projections on our political uh where we are politically and where we're going to be headed do i have any projections on where we are currently (laughs) yeah well, I mean, like, where we're going to be uh, concurrently, because we're in a suspended state. I don't know. We've been off Twitter for an hour, so maybe things have resolved themselves. But. Oh, yeah. I just assumed that Biden's... I'm just following the prediction markets, basically. Okay. And they seem to be very pro-Biden, so I'm, I'm probably not better at guessing reality than the prediction markets are. Do you think, uh, do you think the, the tenor of our time will change under a Biden administration? I hope so. I'm hoping it'll become less polarized, although I don't know. Um, I, I feel very not equipped or educated enough to be able to have a good response to that. Are you concerned about that? Or do you do any work just uh, compassion-wise on, on trying to get people less polarized? Do you have any tricks up your sleeve on doing that? <laughs> I really do it so aggressively. Like on Twitter, I'm like, be less polarized. <laughs> And I watch myself typing these tweets, like just angrily telling people to be compassionate. What am I? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would like people to become less polarized. Like, obviously, Trump voters are people who have legitimate feelings, mm. and I'm, I'm mostly angry at the liberals right now because, like, that's what I get when I when I get the the right wingers being mad at me. Then I hate them too. But like lately, it's been mostly liberals who hate me, um, mm. so I'm mad at them. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like the polarization seems like something that's not going to be solved by just the presidency. I mean, the presidency feels like a symptom or like a result out of a much deeper thing. And I don't feel like I deeply understand the deeper thing well enough to make really good predictions about it. Mm, okay. um, like, it seems like maybe something, something internet causing it, but that feels like a little bit hand wavy. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's a deep problem. Mm. As long as you're doing what you can to fix it um no judgment from from my point of view i'm what kidding if i'm not what if i'm not doing what i can to fix yeah, it yeah i'm saying you can do whatever you want i'm not going to tell you what to do 
Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.